If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. For those of you that are members and have been coming consistently for the last year and a half or so, the fact that we are in Luke chapter 18 will be something of an encouragement to you because you've been here since we started at Luke chapter 1. And if you know that Luke only has 24 chapters, you know the end is in sight. Uh, A year ago, this past Christmas, we actually it was more than a year ago, uh, we started at the end of October, we started Luke's Gospel, and we tried to arrange it so that uh, in Luke's accounting of Jesus' life, we arrived at the Christmas story on Christmas Sunday. And uh, that was helpful for me as a preacher because that that meant I didn't have to stop preaching Luke and come up with a Christmas sermon. And now as we are looking forward in the providence of God, certainly not in any planning on my end, but it looks as if we will finish Luke's gospel with the story of the resurrection of Christ on Easter of next year. And so if, um, if things continue on, that will be uh, an amazing thing in my mind. But this morning, this morning, we need to understand that Jesus is going to step on our toes. Jesus is going to talk about something that for most of us will be painful to hear. He is going to go right for the spiritual jugular vein and show us the deficiency of our prayer life. Now, if you are like me, you probably feel a bit of shame anytime someone brings up the idea of prayer because you know you do not pray as much as you should You do not pray as well as you should. And this morning, Jesus wants to give us every reason that we will pray always and not lose heart. That we will be a people, his disciples, marked by confident, faithful prayer. Let's see how he does this as we look to this parable that he gives in verses 1 through 8 of Luke chapter 18. Follow along as I begin reading. Luke says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? May God bless the reading of his inerrant, inspired, sufficient, and authoritative word this morning. Luke does something interesting here. He, as uh, Matthew Henry says, he leaves the, the key in the lock of the door. Normally, we read through a parable of Jesus, and sometimes we get to the end saying, what in the world is that about? 
How am I supposed to apply that? How am I supposed to understand that? And we feel like the disciples who then, you know, who, who then as the Pharisees kind of grumble and walk away, they're like, uh, explain the parable to us. Uh, you know, what, what were you just talking about? And we feel that way. But here, Luke tells us up front, this is why Jesus is telling the parable. This is what he is trying to convey. This is what he is trying to teach and encourage that his disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. If, if, you, if you walk away from nothing else this morning, this is the main point. This is the application. This is what we ought to, to know and to be doing as we leave, always praying and never losing heart. So let's think about this parable. What is it about? Well, he begins in verse 2 by telling us, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now already we, we see some problems in this situation that Jesus is describing. Think about the kind of judge this man would be even today. He neither fears God or, nor respects man. Both things are actually necessary in order to be a good judge. How can you have any sense of ethics? How can you have any, any moral standard if you do not fear God? Furthermore, how would you have any kind of desire to serve for the betterment of your community, to serve those in your neighborhood, those that are coming before you, if you don't respect your fellow man? And yet here is this person. He has no sense, no desire for justice or mercy. He's not a good judge back then, and he certainly wouldn't be a good judge today. So already we're kind of off to a bad start. Here's this wicked, unrighteous judge, and we're thinking, I don't want to go before this guy. But there is a widow in that city who must go before him, the only judge that's there. Now, culturally, we understand the widow was probably the most vulnerable person in the society of that day. It was a, certainly a patriarchal society, but it also had no welfare system. So if she has no family, she's truly left as a widow, no one to care for her, then she would have had few resources and virtually no influence in the community. No one would have bothered to listen to her voice. No one would have cared. So here are these two people, a marginalized widow and an unjust judge. And Jesus is already putting them together at the beginning of this parable. And you can just imagine those listening saying, this is, this is not going to go well. What is going to happen to this poor woman? Who's going to care for her? How will, how will she find justice? But Jesus says this widow kept coming to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. She doesn't just come once. Jesus says she keeps coming every day, every week, every month. Here was this widow, tenacious and persistent in her cries for justice. She would never let up on the judge. Joshua and I were practicing our note-taking this week, and we, listened, we, we, we were listening to a, a man uh, preach, and I, I listened to his sermon again on this passage, and he said, he said, imagine in a modern context, the judge would walk down the courtroom steps, and there she is sitting on the hood of his car. He, he, he gets home at night and she's out on the street. He, he, he stops for Starbucks coffee in the morning and she's there on the corner constantly saying, Give me justice! Give me justice! And Jesus says, For a while he refused. But afterwards said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, it's amazing that this guy understands exactly who he is. Did you catch that? I mean, he is not, he has no, 
false ideas about his identity. He knows he does not fear God. He knows he does not respect man. He's not shy about that. He's not fooling himself or anyone else. He just doesn't care. And yet this poor widow wore him down. He says, I, I can't take it anymore. She, she, she's relentless. Everywhere I look, she's there. Every time I'm, I'm walking on the street, she's begging. Every time one, one case moves on and the next person comes up, there she is saying, give me justice, give me justice. I just don't want to see her anymore. Get her out of the court. Give her whatever she wants. Well, that's the parable that Jesus told. Why did he tell that parable? Again, he makes it clear. He wants to encourage us to always pray and not lose heart. So as we think about how we are meant to apply this to our lives, that is the key, but we, we want to unpack that in four ways. First, we need to see from Jesus the invitation to constant prayer. The invitation to constant prayer. Now, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, the idea of prayer is almost second nature. The, the, the first thing, the first evidence that Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, was truly converted and would eventually become Paul the Apostle, we read in Acts, says, look, he prays. So, so, so to the early Christians, the first evidence they truly had the Spirit of God is that he is now calling out in the name of Jesus in prayer. And so prayer should be second nature to us. We should feel the privilege and the weight and the need to come before God in prayer. But that's not always the case. That should be the case. That should be the reality of our lives. But one of the deficiencies of American churches is that we are essentially a prayerless church. It is few and far between. If you just start looking through random church websites, you will find any mention of a regular prayer meeting, which used to be the staple of American church life. Why did the public prayer go away? It's because private prayer went away. As God's people in this country, we simply don't take prayer seriously. But that's the very opposite of what Jesus expects of us, that Jesus wants of us. He is inviting us here. He's saying we ought to have a life of constant prayer. He told this parable that we ought always to pray. Now, why is prayer so important? Well, to begin with, remember what James says? You have not because you ask not. In the mystery of God's sovereignty, he has ordained prayer as a means of bringing blessings and salvation to people in this life. So quite simply, it's important because we're not going to have the things that God wants us to have if we don't ask for them. But I also think on a more profound level of Calvin's definition of prayer in his book on Christian theology, where he makes clear, bringing together all of the strands of the Bible's teaching and example of prayer into this definition, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Think about what that means. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. What Calvin is saying there, and I only quote him because I think he's right, I think he's dead right on what the Bible says. The way that we express faith most clearly, most sincerely, most obviously is by calling out to God in prayer. The reason we don't call out to Him in prayer because our faith is weak and we don't really trust Him. That, that's what Calvin is saying. I think that's what the Bible says. 
One of the main ways that we show our faith, we exercise, we express our faith in God is through prayer. Think about it. We demonstrate our trust and our confidence in Him when we call out to Him with our problems. We believe He's going to listen. He's going to help. And so we call out in prayer. If we really think that all things have come from His hand, then anytime something happens for which we are thankful we don't just say wow that was great good luck no we look up to god in heaven and say thank you god because i know that came from your hand we give him praise we have faith that it has come from him so at the the same time as calvin is saying prayer is the chief exercise of faith theologian michael reeves can say prayerlessness is practical atheism demonstrating a lack of belief in god that's why prayer is so important This is, what con- this is why constant prayer is so important. Jesus says that we ought always to pray. And when I look at my own life, and I look at the life of my friends and others that I know and churches that I'm associated with, we just don't live that way. Others have. I think many years ago, on the other side of the Atlantic, periodically the Puritans would gather together for an entire day of just sermon listening and prayer. A guy would preach for an hour, then they would pray for an hour about the things that he just preached on. Then another guy would get up, another pastor would get up, and he would preach for an hour. And then they would pray for an hour about the things that, that he had just preached on. And then, and then they might break for a meal, then they would come back together and they would hear another hour-long sermon and go for another hour of prayer. Now you might think, hey, it's the 1600s, what else do they have to do, right? But, but the reality is um, that they weren't that bored, they had sports, they had other activities. It wasn't like everybody was doing that. It was only the, 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 the godly, pious Christians coming together for those kinds of services. Furthermore, we don't just see it in Puritan England. We see it in modern-day places like Korea and the church in China where they gather together regularly and just spend all day together in prayer. Spend all night together in prayer. I had a, I've told you before about Sang-hun, my, my Korean friend in seminary, and he would talk about gathering together after work. This is not just like pastors or seminary students. This is average Christians in Korea gathering together after work on a Friday. And because of their love for God, the fervency with which they observed his, his presence being needed, they would stay up all night through Friday night into Saturday until about the midday when they would have lunch together and go home and sleep and gather together again on Sunday morning, just spending all night in prayer to the living God. Oh, well, you think about, well, what are they doing? Well, they're pleading God's promises to him. Uh, again, that's what the Puritans used to call prayer, the promises of God in reverse. God says, I promise I will do this, and they say, great, now do it. That's how they prayed. That's how we should pray as well. They're praying the promises of blessings of his kingdom in their midst, of more fruitfulness and effectiveness in ministry, of the gospel taking root in the lives of those that are lost, of their own deepening maturity and godliness in Christ. By and large, that kind of commitment to God in prayer, let's just be honest, it's just not here. It's just not seen in this country right now though it's present in other parts of the world and has been throughout history. But Jesus says that's the way he wants us to live. He didn't say it's a good idea. He didn't say it's, it, it's practically beneficial. Luke says he taught this parable to the effect that we ought always pray. This is what we should be doing. Now let's think though, what does it mean to always pray? What does that look like practically? I think it's very similar to what Paul says, right? In 1 
Thessalonians 5, we ought to be praying without ceasing. It's a command there. Pray without ceasing. What does that look like, though? Now, some people have said it's, it's almost like this meditative state you walk through your whole, your, your whole day. And I, 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 don't, I don't buy that. Okay, I, I think that prayer, if nothing else, is meant to be a conversation with God as we are consciously talking to Him, making appeals, giving thanksgiving, just like we would a friend or a spouse. So I think when, when Jesus says we ought to be always praying, or Paul says we ought to pray without ceasing, it, it's, a, it's about an attitude and a willingness to pray at a moment's notice with any care or any word of thanks to God. So the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon used the example of knights in Europe and how in the midst of war years, they would often sleep in the basic elements of their armor, not all the big heavy stuff that you often see, but, but the, 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 the chain mail shirts and pants so that way if battle should arise, at a moment's notice they were up, sleeping in their armor, swords by their side. He called them grim warriors, ready for battle any moment. And Spurgeon goes on to say that's what we should be like at prayer, at home at work and triumph and defeat, always ready to call out to God and pray. But that's just us individually. Think about what that might look like for us as a church. Think about what it might look like if as a church we said, look, we ought always to pray. And we acted on that. What would that, what would that look like? Think about what it might mean to, to be sitting in a service like this, looking across the aisle towards the end and seeing someone responding to the service in tears. And rather than feeling awkward and embarrassed and kind of avoiding them, to actually making a beeline for them and putting our arm around them and comforting them by praying with them and for them. Think about what it might be like to have someone ask you in the hallway, how are you doing? And you actually respond honestly and say, I barely made it here today. I'm just, I'm just so depressed with life. I, 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 don't, I, don't even know, I don't even know what to do. Rather than saying, well, be warm and filled, have a good day, and walking along, we actually stopped. And we used one of the multiplicity of chairs and nooks and crannies around this building and actually prayed for that person. Even if we say, I, I, I don't know what to say. That's all right. Just pray with them. Ask God to be with them and, and to comfort them and give them a sense of His presence and encouragement. Think about what it would be. I, I, I'm so thankful for the, 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 the times when I, when I put a prayer request on or I see somebody else put it on and I get that little notification that someone has prayed for on the table. But think about going the extra step and then in a, in a day or two calling the person. Maybe joyfully spending the money on gas to drive across town and see them face to face and, and pray with them that way and ask them how they're doing and, or how that situation is. Think about what it might be like to fill this auditorium every first Saturday and to so feel the privilege and the power of prayer that we say, you know what, one Saturday is not enough. This needs to be a weekly thing. We've got to be gathering together because we desperately need God. Jesus, Jesus says we ought to have a life of constant prayer. That, that's what he's inviting us to. Not just expecting, but actually inviting us to be a part of in this passage. And yet he's also aware of the difficulty we have in prayer. So he teaches this parable that we, not, that we might not succumb to the temptation of discouraged prayerlessness. The temptation of discouraged prayerlessness. Notice, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now what might cause us to lose heart and thus become prayerless? Well, this goes back to 
the Bible's teaching about the relationship between prayer and faith. If prayer is the chief exercise of faith, if it is the primary way that we show and demonstrate our trust in God, then it's when our faith is flagging that we will lose heart in prayer and not pray. Think about with me just for a minute about the kind of circumstances that might cause us to become weak in our faith and prayerless before God. It's almost always the midst of difficulty, isn't it? It's almost always in the midst of trying circumstances where, where, where life has dealt us that kind of sucker punch that we were not expecting at all. And we, and we just think, I can't believe that's happened. I'm not ready for this. I don't, I don't know what, what's going to happen. And, and it's in that kind of moment when, when frankly, our, our faith is being tested. Will we look to God and trust Him or will we keep our eyes focused on our situation and despair? I think the temptation all of us feel is to, is to despair, is to hopelessness, to not look to God, but to just look at our circumstance and try and figure out how am I going to get through this, knowing we don't, we don't know how we're going to get through it. Sadly, we begin to believe that God doesn't really care for us because of the situation we've just gone through. So painful is the event that we cannot see a way forward and believe that our circumstance is not going to change. We began to walk down this path of despair and get to the point where, frankly, prayer is the last thing we want to do. I mean, that's my experience. Is it yours too? Think about the widow in this passage in the face of the judge at this parable. I mean, was, was there any reason to think that she would find justice? She had every reason to lose heart, every reason to feel that her cause was hopeless. And if I had to guess, I think that many of us lose heart in prayer because we see ourselves as the widow and that we probably never verbalize that we see God as the judge. We, we, we see because of what we've gone through, what we've experienced, we, we, we think of our situation as being hopeless because God has allowed it to happen. He, he, he's just an unjust judge. He's just a heartless judge, unwilling to give us justice, unwilling to give us anything good in this life. I mean, that, that goes back to the garden where Eve doubted God's goodness and his provision of all things and withholding the tree by which they would die if they ate of its fruit. And we're no different. We think to ourselves, why should I bother to pray? God doesn't care. He's not listening. What's the point? That's the temptation that we face. One time in seminary, I had emailed a professor because there were some basic classes on a subject that I was expected to take as part of my degree program, but I had had several classes very similar to them in college, and I wanted to get out of the basic classes and take advanced classes in the same subject. And so I emailed the professor thinking this is not going to be a big deal, but he replied in a very discouraging way, basically saying he didn't have confidence that those college classes would have covered the material in the same way with the same kind of emphasis, and therefore he was pretty much unwilling, it was unlikely that he would let me get out of those. But I could still come by to his office and talk with him. Well, I don't mind confessing that I was uh, pretty indignant and, and frustrated and, and had a pretty bad attitude and kind of was prepping for the meeting by saying, I'm going to show him. And halfway across the seminary campus, my, my kind of eager, angry step suddenly lost all of its power. And I, I began to slow and I began to move from indignity to despair, thinking, why am I even going to this meeting? His mind's made up. 
He's not going to say yes. Nothing's going to change. I'm going to have to take these courses. And so I stopped walking, stood for a minute, turned around and walked back to my apartment. Emailed the professor and said, I'm sorry, I can't make the meeting. Now, friends, how often has that been our attitude in prayer? We, 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 we're so bound up and, 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 and excited or emotional or worrisome about the circumstance that we think, I, I don't know what to do and maybe I'll pray. And then we just think, but why bother? It's happened. It's not going to change. Well, 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 why would God even listen to me? That's the kind of hopelessness, the kind of despair that leads us to not have faith, not have confidence and trust in God, and therefore not to call out to Him in prayer. We lose heart, and therefore we don't pray as we ought. And here, in this parable, Jesus understands that temptation. He understands it very, very well. Because the night that He was betrayed, He was in the garden, knowing that He was going to the cross and, and, he, and he knew what that was going to mean. Frankly, the physical pain was nothing. He was going to absorb the wrath, the fullness of God's wrath against sin. And, 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 and he stumbles. He, he, is tempted to, he is tempted to doubt God's goodness and, and his love and this plan. And he says, oh, if there's some other way, take this, this, this cup of wrath. And he says, nevertheless, God, I will trust you. I do believe you are good. Your will be done. And he stands up and confidently goes to his betrayal and therefore to the cross. And so Jesus understands that temptation to lose heart and become prayerless. And so here he gives us three weapons with which to fight the temptations of despair and hopelessness that would lead to prayerlessness. What are these weapons? Three attributes of God's immutable character. Three things that we can look to grounded in the very nature and essence of God that will never change. And so here in the character of God, we find the assurance of divine provision. The assurance of divine provision. God will provide for the needs of his people. We can be assured of it. In contrast, the unjust judge who only begrudgingly gives justice because he feels harassed, Jesus says in verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In other words, the judge is not a model of God. He's the antithesis of God in this parable. And so from these verses, Jesus sets before us three attributes, three characteristics of God, and each of them is meant to be a dagger that we stab into the heart of hopelessness so that we may always pray and never lose heart. So what are these three characteristics? What are these three weapons against our temptation? First, God is just. God is just just. Jesus asked, will not God give justice to his elect? That question is not meant to be one for debate. It's not meant to be one that you stand back and ponder for weeks and months on end. It is a rhetorical question whereby the disciples know because they know the, the totality of the 39 books of the Old Testament where they've seen over and over and over again, God, if nothing else, is a just God. He is just. And yes, he will give justice to his people, his elect. He is not the unlikely, he is not like the unrighteous judge. Surely he will come and he will give justice to his people. Even today, we look to our modern day law courts and we see a good system, but a flawed system. 
We, we see disparities that sometimes make justice really hard to come by. And Jesus is saying, don't lose heart because in God you have a final court of appeals. You may not get justice in this life, but one day you will fully and finally be vindicated for God is just. And because He is just, we can have confidence to go before Him in prayer knowing that we will be heard. We will have justice. More than that, Jesus says God is love. God is love. God, God is just but God is love. Notice again, to whom God gives his justice. Verse 7, to his elect who cry to him day and night. Now that term elect is used all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, to describe God's people. The doctrine of election says that God is the one who chooses to save a people for himself. So out of the mass of sinful humanity, out of the mass of all those justly condemned for their sin, stained by sin, blinded by corruption, he chooses to save some for himself to be his people. And so Jesus will say things like this in John 15. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. Likewise, the Apostle John will later say, we love God because he first loved us. That's how John describes election, God's love towards his people. Now, I press home that point because some in the church, not necessarily here, but, but in other churches, want to make the doctrine of election a lightning rod. They want to make it a point of controversy and, a, and, and, and this thing to be argued about, but the Bible never presents it that way. The Bible always presents the doctrine of election as a source of comfort and assurance to God's people. And so that's why in John 15, Jesus can say, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit. And in the very next verse, he says, so whatever you ask in my name to the Father, he may give it to you. See what Jesus says there? You don't have to worry about your relationship with God depending on you. God is the first mover. God is the one who saw you when you were not even looking at God and he reaches down and he saves you, he calls, him, he calls you to himself, he cleans you up, he washes you off, he gives you the, the glowing raiment of Christ's righteousness and says, you are now my child. So you call out to God and ask for whatever you want in Jesus' name, and you will be heard because you are God's elect. He has set his seal of love upon you. That's why when, when Jesus' disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, what is the first thing he teaches them? When you pray, say, Father, Father, when you call out to God, you're not the judge of the universe to whom you're calling anymore. You are calling out to Father. And so when at least one of my kids was little, that being around some of you growing up, they suddenly looked at me and said, Pastor John. And I very quickly said, no, Daddy, Daddy. You, 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 the, the, the very different relationship. And, and, and Jesus is saying the same thing. You're not coming to God just as king, though he is a king. You're not just coming to him as a judge, though he is a judge. You are now calling out to him as father. Because through Jesus, we are now adopted as sons alongside him. We are brought into the eternal fellowship of the triune God. The father forever loving the son, the son forever loving the father, and now we are forever loved by the father along with the son. And so we call out to God, Father, because we are loved, we are his elect. Amen. God is just, God is love, and God is wise. God is wise. Now that word wisdom does not even come close to being in our text. You might wonder, how does he get that? The reality is though wisdom is not used, wise is not used, it's all over 
the, the passage. Jesus says, verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to his elect speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now notice what Jesus does. He connects the giving of justice with his return. He says, will he linger long? No, he's going to come speedily to give justice. Here's the problem. Do we feel like God has speedily come? No. I mean, Jesus connects the giving of justice with his return. And last week, I think we established by looking at one another that Jesus has not yet returned. No offense to some of you. Right? The Son of Man has not yet appeared, and yet that's where Jesus says full and final justice is going to come. And so we might, that might be a problem for us because they're saying, I want it, I want it now. What, where, where is it? And the fact that justice has not come may, may cause us to think God is not good or God is not wise. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Look at the world. Surely he should have come back already. But remember what Peter says in his second letter? The Lord is not slow. There's that word again. Will, will, will the Father delay? Will he be slow? No, he will come speedily. Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That there is wisdom in the, re the delayed return of Jesus from our perspective, from God's perspective. There's no delay. It is going to happen precisely at the appropriate time because God is good God is wise. Even now, before the return of Christ, God hears and answers our prayers. And what does he do? He wisely decides to say yes, no, or wait. We ask for all kinds of things, but God's going to say yes, no, or wait. Now, some of you can tap into your inner kid, but let me just talk to some of the, the kids that are here. Do you like it when you're told no? No. Do you like it when you're told wait? No, right? I am reminded, and in our family, we like the Willy Wonka movies. And, and, and I'm reminded of, of, um, of course, the name just completely went out of my head, but um, Veruca Salt. As she's singing in, in the original, which is, I mean, there's no contest is better. I know we can argue that later, but uh, Gene Wilder, come on. I ain't going to go wrong. But, but she's saying, you know, I want the world. I want the whole world. And when does she want it? I want it now, Right? That's how we are, isn't it, kids? And let me tell you something. When you grow up, often it doesn't change. We want it now. And God is saying, you don't want that now. You, you don't want that ever. You, you think that looks good, but it's not. That's the reason why mommy and daddy and other grown-ups will say, no, you, you, you cannot eat the entire bowl of candy the night of Halloween. Okay? That is not going to go well for you. Okay? You, you will go from a plastic bowl to a porcelain bowl in just a few hours. And it, it, you are not going to like the circumstances, right? The, the grown-up is exercising wisdom and saying, yes, no, or wait. And God does the exact same thing. Sometimes we are so impatient, we think, I know this would make the situation better. And God says, you don't have a clue what's going to make the situation better. Because you don't know the end from the beginning. You're not eternal, you can't see the intentions and desires of the hearts of all those around you, including yourself, that this is really selfish and not going to be good for you. God is wise, not just in waiting, as we see it, to send the Son, but even now in determining how he answers our requests. So God is just, God is loving, God is wise. How do we drill these things into our minds and hearts? Because here's what Jesus is saying. If you get those three things, 
then you're always going to have faith in God and call out to him in prayer. It, 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 will, it, will, it will slay at the root hopelessness because you're going to say, no, I, I know. I know for a fact I believe God is just. God is loving. God is wise. I, I, I must, I can call out to him in prayer. How do we drill these things into our mind? Well, it might seem cliche. It might even sound trite, but frankly, we read the Bible. I mean, remember, if prayer is the chief exercise of faith, then we have to ask, how is faith created? How is, it, how is faith deepened in a person's life? And, and Paul gives us that well-known answer from Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So do you want to have the rock-solid character of God so poured as a foundation under your feet that you will never lose heart and you will always pray? Then you've got to be in His Word, seeing how over and over and over and over again from the beginning of time, predicted onto the end of time, He is always just. He is always loving, even to sinners, but especially His elect, His people. And He is always wise. That's how, that's, how, that's how we take up these weapons of warfare against hopelessness and live lives of constant prayer. Jesus here through this parable has invited us to constant prayer. He has shown us the temptation of hopeless prayerlessness. He has given us the assurance of divine provision. And finally, we need to see his expectation of faithful persistence. We need to see the expectation of faithful persistence. This past week, many of us remembered... September 11th, and one of the stories as I was kind of reading around looking for, for some resources for Joshua to look at in school about this, I came across a story that, to my knowledge, had possibly never even been revealed before. At least, I had never read it. On that day, September 11th, 2001, on that morning, an F-16 fighter jet took off from Andrews Air Force Base, scrambled not long after the first two planes had hit the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. The problem with that F-16 was that it was prepped to fly with dummy ammunition because it had just finished a two-week training for Lieutenant Heather Panay, one of the first female combat pilots of that squadron. Remember, this, this is September 11th. Before that, the Cold War is over. We don't sit around with live ammunition on our fighter planes in domestic territory. Now that's different. Back then, they said it would have taken an hour to load live weapons. And on that morning, we did not have an hour as more planes were in the air. So Colonel Mark Sassville told his co-pilot, Lieutenant Heather Panay, who had just finished her training, he was going for the cockpit, and she followed. Such was the urgency of the moment that fleet pre-flight checks were ignored. Safety pins were pulled out off the plane as it was taxiing down the runway. Both the colonel and the lieutenant knew what this mission meant. There was no way to shoot down the rogue aircraft. They would have to bring it down by ramming the plane. They thought about, even discussed, ejecting before impact, but they also knew that meant risking the plane not accurately hitting their target. Therefore, they knew it was a kamikaze run, and they took it willingly. They were prepared to lay down their lives if it meant saving others. Mercifully, it didn't come to that for them. The plane that they were targeting was United Flight 93, and that plane actually had passengers on it that you well know stormed the cabin and did what they were prepared to do, giving the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. Now, in that situation, the colonel and lieutenant could not see any other option. This was all they could do to fulfill their job. Christ laid down his life, but it was not the only option that he had. 
He could have justly condemned all of humanity for their sinful rebellion against him. Never forget, God owes you nothing. God does not owe us salvation. He would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sins and allow us to receive our just judgment. But God didn't do that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His own Son born into this world to be our Savior. Jesus willingly took our place on the cross under God's wrath that we might be forgiven. The question is, are we now living in response to that sacrifice? Look at verse 8. Jesus tells this parable and then He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, not in an abstract way, will there be people believing? No, God promises there will be. The question is meant to be piercing to our hearts. Will the Son of Man find faith in us when he returns? He has given us every reason to trust Him. He died for our sins and rose back to life. He displayed Himself to be the perfect Savior, worthy of our faith. He has pointed us back to God the Father and reminded us of what we see in the Scriptures over and over again, that He is just and loving and wise toward His people. We can trust Him. We can put our faith in Him. But Jesus says, will we be doing that when He returns? How will He know? Because He will see within us a consistent and persistent faith-filled life of prayer. We are not like the widow who had to beg over and over and over again for justice. No, we are going to a father, not an unjust judge. So, so if we are persistent in our prayer, it's not because God is stingy. It's because we so desperately know how much we need what he can provide. God delights to answer our prayers. But if we fail to pray, then it shows we don't trust him. If we fail to pray, it shows that we really think God is no different than the unjust judge. The central point, again, the central application is clear. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, especially for our members this morning, I want us to imagine what would happen if we just trusted God enough to live that way. Imagine what would happen if we stopped playing church and started praying as the church. May God give us the grace this day to always pray and not lose heart, Father. Our faith will rise when we look to you, when we look to your glorious scene through your only begotten Son. His perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection for us. Father, that is the the, the lens by which your beauty and magnificence is reflected so clearly throughout all the scriptures. The salvation that you give to undeserving sinners. And Father, when we come again and again and again to behold that reality, then surely our faith will deepen. It It will rise up and therefore our prayer lives will go with it. Father, this morning we pray with repentant hearts asking you forgive us for our faithlessness. Forgive us for not trusting you, for doubting your goodness and your desire to hear us and therefore failing to pray as we ought. Father, may we display your worth. May we display your glory. May we display your righteous character by being a people who always pray and never lose heart. God, only you can cultivate this in in our lives. We ask it desperately because we know how much we need it.